Hey everyone, welcome to this podcast brought to you by Raptor Aid and hosted by me, Jimmy Hill. During the coronavirus lockdown, we decided to host some live interviews with raptor conservationists and experts from all over the world. The podcast you're about to listen to was recorded during the lockdown period live on Facebook. Apologies if some of it sounds a little bit disjointed and we go a little bit off track with questions from the audience, but hopefully you'll enjoy listening to your favourite expert right here on Raptor Rambles. In this interview, we chat to Dr. Darcy Agada of the Peregrine Fund. Darcy is based out in Kenya as the Peregrine Fund's assistant director to their Africa programs, and she knows a thing or two about vultures. Here we learn a little bit about vulture and lion conservation and what they've got in common. Right. Um, Good. Right. Well, welcome, everyone. Um, we should be live again. Uh, and today we are joined by Dr. Darcy Agada from uh, the Peregrine Fund. So you're the first person, Darcy, that we've had on from the Peregrine Fund. So I'm very excited about this because I follow the follow the Peregrine Fund, and I know a lot lot of other people do. Uh, and you're based in Kenya as assistant program director for African projects. Is that right? Or program? yeah, that's correct. Yes. Cool. Okay. Well, thank you for joining us. Um, I really yeah, appreciate thanks. it. Um, the gist of it is, uh, well, I just told you off screen, is basically, yeah, it, it's just a window of, of your, you explaining to people what you get up to in, in Africa, and then I'll, I'll fire questions in. So, so yeah, tell us, tell us a little bit about, you, you've been at the Peregrine Fund for quite a while, is that right? How long have you been working? Yeah, Peregrine? about 10 years now. Yep, cool. been great. Okay. Kind of worked me. my way in and still here. <laughs> Tell us about the start then. How did you get it? Because I, I always, one of the things I love doing with Raptor Aid is just to get the ball rolling is, is I get a lot of people asking me, and I'll probably ask you this towards the end. I ask a lot of people it, is I get a lot of people asking me about getting into Raptor conservation and how they do it and whether it's an academic or just a member of the general public. So yeah, tell, tell us a bit about your start sort of leading into Peregrine Fund and Raptors and that side of things. Okay, sure. Uh, actually, I was always amazed at the Peregrine Fund too. I used to, I remember when I was in the U.S. American and uh, well, I'm actually dual citizen now. I've been in Kenya for 20 years. Um, but when I first started working on birds of prey, I was in the U.S. and I was working on bald eagles on the Hudson River. And it was actually, um, it was 1997 when um, my boss, whose name was Pete Nye, I, I, I shouldn't say wasn't his name, he's still alive, but he's retired. Um, and we were, work, I was actually just hired as like a summer person to check on bald eagle uh, nesting on the Hudson River. And it turned out, um, I was really lucky in that first year of the project because it turned out that the eagle nests that I was watching, there was two pairs and one of them had chicks and it was the first bald eagle nest on the Hudson River in over a hundred years. And that was mostly because of the issues with DDT in the okay. US. So yeah, when they were first like, I mean, the, pair, or the bald eagles had come back in the US already in some states, but in, in New York, it was sort of later. And uh, it, well, in the Northeast in general, it was pretty late when they came back. And so yeah, 1997, and uh, that's when they, yeah, the first first nest was. So that was, you know, that was sort of a great way to kick off any career in with with raptors because it was pretty historic moment. And uh, so I ended up from there actually um, doing some more projects with other researchers on bald eagles and the Hudson River. And then I remember because I was working. Um, the New York State uh, Department of Environmental Conservation. And I remember going into the office very occasionally and seeing the Peregrine Fund catalog because they used to put out their annual catalog. And I used to flip through it and I used to think, wow, you know, these guys are doing such amazing projects all over the world. Um, and now all these years later, you know, to actually be working for them is pretty, you know, it's, it's fantastic. Um, and it was, you know, I can't say it's it's not it's never easy getting into some of these organizations 
you know, working in conservation because it's sort of, you know, it's it's all it's a network, you know, and you have to kind of very. I mean, it there are jobs that are advertised, of course, but usually those are the sort of entry level. You know, maybe they're paid, maybe they're not. Um, but those are always the ways to get in the door, and those are really important. And it's always good never to burn your bridges because you yeah. do find it's a pretty small world out there, even globally for raptors. Yeah, yeah. All kinda, you know, know each other or eventually know each other. So yeah, yeah. So I ended up coming to Kenya in 2000 to do a a, a master's. I was supposed to be here for a year. And um, I was working for a, a U.S. researcher who was doing a, a project on mice. And um, so I was supposed to be doing a whole bunch of, you know, mouse trapping and things like that. And then I got back into birds because it was a really bad year um, the, the, in 2000. It was drought. And so there were very few mice. Yeah. So I ended up, um, as part of the, the my work here, it was actually... I was going to do a master's degree um, as part of it. So I was working for her on her mouse project while I was doing, a, you know, it was supposed to be a, a separate project, but related um, with mice um, at the same time for a year. And because it was really dry, I ended up doing my project on birds, which was more of my interest anyway. So I, I did a little bit with mice, then I did more with birds. And then, yeah, I did my... I did my mouse or my mouse and bird project. And then it turned out in the meantime that I met my future husband at who's Kenyan and I met him at the research center. And so one year of doing a project um, turned into three at the research center, which um, was at Impala Research Center in, in central Kenya, which is a fantastic place. So it's you know, everybody wants to stay. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so three years on, and then by the end, somewhere in the end, towards the end of that, we had gotten married. So, you know, one thing just, you know, life just takes over, right? Yeah, that's it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I ended up, yeah, kind of, hey, I finished my master's, and I was, um, by this point, we had moved from, from the bush into Nairobi, because neither of us had jobs really. And then, you know, one year of Nairobi was just too much. Uh, ended up moving where I still live now, which is an hour outside. And then I was trying to figure out, you know, how do I get back to what I wanted to do? And so I came up with a project on owls. Um, there were always a, you know, always a love and anybody yeah. who's enjoyed raptors, I mean, you have to love an owl, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I ended up kind of making up my project and getting uh, in a an advisor down in South Africa at Rhodes University. And so I ended up, you know, I just wanted to actually do the project. It was a project looking at McKinder's Eagle Owl, which is a subspecies of the Cape Eagle Owl. Mm -hmm. And it's it's got a very strange distribution in Africa. And so it it's not really common in many places. And so there was very little work done on it in most places apart from a few places in Southern Africa. So I just decided I would look at its ecology, uh, and we looked at some nesting places because it turned out this this owl was actually nesting in very densely populated areas um, around the base. It's a highland species, so it was around the bases of Aberdares and Mount Kenya regions at high elevations, but right right in the middle of farms, but nesting um, mostly on cliffs because of the human traffic. So I ended up doing a project on eagle owls for, gosh, I did it for almost four years because, you know, it was my, it was what I had to do. And then actually um, the only reason I stopped was because I had my son um, at the end of that. But basically yeah, I did that. And then um, from there, we just um, started getting really into, actually from the, from the owl work is how I got into all of the work I do on poisoning. Because um, okay, yeah. I think, yeah, you know, I do a lot of work with vultures now, but it actually, the vulture work all started because I got interested in this whole issue of wildlife poisoning. And that was because of the owl work, because we used to go out and find um, 
owl, I, they weren't freshly dead, but they were old carcasses, bones mostly and some feathers of dead owls. And the guy that I worked with, his name is Paul Marithi, he, um, you know, he would recite these stories to me where he knew people were persecuting owls for, you know, taboo re reasons and mostly. And so we were just, you know, having this conversation, we would go out in the field, we'd walk around and we would see actually people putting out what are basically pesticides, insecticides um, on what they would do is in this instance, they were cutting tomatoes and, and in half and they were still on the vine and they would put this poison. It was, it was purplish. It's actually furidan or carbofurin. Mm -hmm. And um, they would put it on the lace, the sort of half of a tomato with it. So you could actually see it. I have photos of yeah. it. And they were, they were using that as sort of rat control. Um, but of course, anything, and even kids, we would have sprays of farmers telling us, you know, kids get sick. And, you know, it's just, you know, that's the problem with, you know, any kind of pesticide or herbicides is that anything can come. And, you know, and of course, we know with raptors how yeah. tragic the usual circumstances are, particularly with, you know, species like owls and rodenticides. So it was more like a homegrown uh, rodenticide, you know, treatment of just, that's how they would do it for, for mice. And then the owls would come in, or sometimes they would intentionally try and kill, particularly baby owls. So it was all, that was where my real ex, um, first exposure to all the wildlife poisoning came. Okay. But, yeah, but then um, because I had been, um, when I was at the research center um, for the first few years, I was, part of the work I was doing was actually looking at predators of mice um, as part of my advisor's project. And so we had been doing, those three years, we had been doing um, pre uh, predator surveys. So we were we were monitoring raptor populations just, you know, by walking around counting birds of prey once a month, but for three years. So we had quite a bit of data. And so after I started looking at this, you know, what was happening to owls, and then there was at kind of at the same time, there were reports coming from mostly Northern Kenya about a lot of poisoning of predators, mostly lions, um, hyenas also. But of course, with every poisoning, there was always birds. Um, tawny eagles um, and, and vultures. Of course, yeah. most people couldn't tell you which species, but there was always, always birds. And the, the predators were targeted because they were um, feeding on people's livestock. Yeah. But of course, the residual damage to the non-target species was always way more than than the actual predators so we um so we started I see there's a light little glowing haze over my head um so we started so I actually from that from that sort of those interactions and getting these um emails about these poisonings, we, I started to go back and look at the data that we had collected in the early 2000s um, to do with the mouse project. And I got my advisor interested and we actually wrote a paper about it because it turned out that the over those three years, uh, there was actually quite a significant decline that we could pick up um, in just three years, which is a really short period of time. Yeah, yeah. You know? yeah. And so, we were able to publish that and that just showed how much, you know, vultures are sort of disappearing from, you know, Northern Kenya at least. And so that kind of speared me into the whole, when it what turned into this sort of most of my career, which has been, you know, dominantly now focused on vultures and, and wildlife poisoning. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's kind of how I got here. And, uh, so what yeah. did you, what, what you, obviously you're, you're a doctor as well. So what, what was your, which project, what was your PhD in? Was, was that on vultures or in, on the owl work? Or that was the else? owl work. Yeah, I never actually had any intention of doing a PhD. I always thought, well, <laughs> you know, I just want to be in the field. And it is true because the higher you, the more education you do, the more, the longer you're going to sit behind a computer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's just yeah. the way it is. But yeah. my husband said, you know, you know, if you're going to do the work, might as well just 
do it anyway. And I thought, well, okay, it's not something to regret. It's just, you know, nothing I had ever planned to do, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. just the way life is. So yeah, that was on the, on the owls. And I, I actually did a, um, my, I did a postdoc actually um, at back at the same research center where I started in um, late 2000 and then, or sorry, 2009, and then mostly 2000, 2010. Um, <clears throat> and that was, that was very interesting because, you know, I, it was actually a life issue that pushed me into that because my, my husband um, moved on and I was with a one-year-old and I was desperate for what I was going to do and keep myself going right and yeah. everything just sort of flashed before my eyes and I didn't have a job at the time so I was like oh gosh I gotta I gotta do something right and um, yeah, yeah. so somebody sent me a a um, link about this you know the Smithsonian um, does these postdocs and the Impala Research Center is actually a Smithsonian um, it's an affiliated um, research center yeah. So you could actually do the um, the postdoc at Impala Research Center, and I was like, "Oh, this is here's an opportunity." But I had no idea what to do, and I had to, I had about two weeks to come up with a project, yeah. and I was and it was a significant sort of amount of you know funding to just live on, you know, just a small salary, which it would have been pretty small in the U.S., but in Kenya, you know, it was fairly significant. So I was. So desperate to just try and get something in um, some money in my pocket um, and keep going. So I just got in touch with some friends and I knew I, you know, I had some ideas, but it it's amazing how, you know, life circumstances, you know, just propel you in a direction. That yeah, you're... yeah. And I think it's, it's really, in a way, it's nice to hear. I think it's really nice to hear for people that might be tuning in that are in similar situations or, or like I say, academics or people that want to take that step into, to doing this sort of thing, or they don't know how to, you know, go about it. I think it's really, it's, yeah, it's, it's nice to hear from someone who's, further down the line and with big experience in this field to yeah how you got started it's it's interesting I want to ask you about I'm going to stick with the owls because you're right mm. people, people do love owls and there was a question maybe I'm being a bit bi biased because it's well it's my my thing that I'm hosting it so there was a question I really wanted to talk to you about about owls um, which was um, the National Geographic article that was done on the eggs owl eggs being used for witchcraft but bef maybe before we talk about that i'd be mm. um on tuesday we had um professor alexandra rulin on who's based in switzerland and he does a huge amount of work on barn owls yeah and i know him actually he, mm -hmm. so so it, and it was brilliant and he we were talking about that you know barn owls and, and working with farmers with palestinians and, and israel israelis um and i just was thinking when you were talking about about obviously the the sort of the taboo and the all the sort of cultural background of owls in in kenya for instance have you managed to win many people over to see that owls are actually more benefit for say killing rodents and protecting crops or is it still is it still quite with a lot of people it's still this this view that owls have, have got a, a bad name and ill omen sort of effect yeah it's it's so hard i mean i still despite all my work with with vultures i still work with paul marithi and i still try and keep my foot in with owls although the circumstances now have changed and they continually change it's really hard to know and to be able to answer that question because as we were wrapping up a lot of that my you know most of my owl work which was around 2008 um in that time there was an, when i started which was in 2004 there was one story that paul told me about somebody coming um, who was, I, who was based, they were sort of a, a wealthy, um, family that was based in Nairobi and they, 
they were, I don't know if they were, I think they were Kenyan, but I can't remember. They were African anyway. And they came with a, a like a witch doctor from Tanzania. Um, and they came to the study site and they asked Paul, you know, they wanted to buy owl eggs. And because most of the stories behind owl eggs are that, you know, people believe that they can be used um, to cure some kind of diseases um, and like things like AIDS, HIV AIDS, um, cancer. I think this particular person was actually the daughter had cancer. I can't remember which kind, but it didn't matter. Um, so there was these beliefs around owl eggs. I've really tried to investigate and I've talked to other people here and it's, we struggled to find a real like long-term cultural link to these, to this belief in particular. Um, whether you know it's been there for a hundred years or if it's more something more recent, and I, we kind of get the feeling it's something a little more recent. Okay. But it's you know I'm not a cultural anthropologist, so I guess there's better people to answer that. But you know from our situation, what we've seen is that you know it's it was there all it's been there at a little like a trickle you know, for many years, but by 2000, around 2008, 2009, it was becoming a lot more than a trickle. It was like, so the guy, um, Paul Marithi, who I'm talking about, he's, he was, I actually met him because he was um, interviewed in the local newspaper, a story about owls and how like this local guy is just, you know, he's making a little bit of a living off showing tourists like bird tourists come through his area um, because they want to see this mckinder's eagle owl because it's not very you know very common and so yeah. and he was luckily in a he's in, he was based in an area on this sort of the tourist route where they kind of pass through so he was doing this, this kind of tourism related project but he was also very good with educating local people about owls and he would increasingly over the years he's had a lot more like Kenyans and school groups just local people come and learn more about owls but I can say it's still in its infancy and um and the problem has become that and the reason I say I can't say really how much there is still a lot of negative like taboo feelings about owls because the the situation here, and it's mirrored in a lot of countries, not just even in Africa, but yeah. a lot of the developing world, as people know, there's, you know, owls are a bad omen. If, like here, if, if an owl lands on your house, someone inside's gonna die. Um, hearing an owl who, you know, people would go out and, you know, the, the minimal they'll do is scare it away, but they could do even worse. So those were always the taboos and they're still there. There's a lot of owl superstition taboos and a lot of people say, you know, it's, it's a lot of times it's with anything that's kind of weird, right? Cause owls are nocturnal. They turn their heads around, you know, 180 degrees. So they're kind of, they're weird, right? <laughs> so anything like that has a lot of taboos. And so there's always this, Still, there's still this very strong taboo, but what's come in is the fact that with the the trade in owl eggs. So I was saying that this this there's been this huge increase since around 2008 of this basically commercialization of owl eggs. Um, and I can't say I can say there's a lot of it that stemmed from Tanzania. They also have a lot more. Sort of um, spiritual healers, witch doctor kind of, you know, beliefs. Um, yeah. that, that is really a core in our areas, Tanzania. So we've always suspected that a lot of the eggs are going into Tanzania. Um, and we have some evidence for that. Um, I mean, we've, you know, had people come in from with Tanzania, number plates and all that, trying to buy eggs from the site where I was working. So so while this, so this trade in, in, in owl eggs has grown substantially, I mean, now it is just unbelievable. There's not a place in Kenya that you'll go um, that you won't, if you are looking for owls, um, especially even if you're a local person, I say, you know, especially someone me who's white, you know, I always stick out. But even if you're a local person and somebody finds out you're looking for owls, they will, the, it'll be almost instant or 
somebody will call you after you have left that area. I have eggs, do you wanna buy them or where can I sell them? I mean, that's why I don't go out in the field anymore and I really don't want any students studying owls because everybody wants to sell you owl eggs or owls or know how to link to the market. There's been a huge commercialization in, in owl eggs and we don't really know the whole source of that. Um, apart from Tanzania, we've also heard other stories about them going to Arab countries. I don't know how true that is, but all I can say is um, so that there's a huge issue of, you know, the trade in Alex. And so what you find now is people, you don't know what people believe. So it's either they believe the taboos, which is still probably the majority of them. But then you get these people who have heard about, you know, all the trade. And so then you don't know, okay, do they really fear owls or do they actually want owls because yeah. they want to sell their them or their eggs or whatever. So it's a very murky world right now. <laughs> yeah. And, and as you say, I, I remember reading, reading that in the article that you'd, you'd stop Well, it was, you, you didn't want to to continue monitoring the, the owls for fear of obviously leading people to them or encouraging people to go out and collect eggs and um, yeah, to sell them. It's a, it really in interests me. Uh, yeah, my, one of my big fascinations with birds of prey is the, the sort of cultural aspect and the human relationship with owls. So uh, I'd, never, I'd never heard of that. So it was really interesting to read the National Geographic article, but it is, it's such a shame that, that yeah, more work can't potentially be done into it in the respect that, yeah, you're potentially going to put the owls at risk um, with it. Yeah, it's, um, you know, education is, is hugely needed. And I think that's obviously a way to go. You know, it's, it's just that, you know, education is a long term process. And this is a real immediate need. So of course, you look at all angles. And, you know, we have been have obviously been working a bit with Kenya Wildlife Service to try and stem some of this, you know, particularly when you get someone calling you asking for Alex or emailing you, which still happens. I mean, it was happening to Paul like every week, you know, if not multiple times a week. I'm not exactly sure. I haven't talked to him in a little bit about how often it is now, but I, I've been getting emails, you know, every, not every month, but, you know, every couple of months. Yeah. So it is a huge demand still. And so we do try and work with the security department of Kenya Wildlife Service. Um, but, you know, it's hard to know exactly what they do because obviously there's secret, you know, you know, <laughs> that you, they don't want to tell you and how they operate and everything. So yeah, I've, I've been talking to some people, um, NGOs that work with um, poaching and trade in, in, in animals and stuff. So it's just been, it's, yeah, it's sort of, actually we're talking about it again recently because there's some other people who are interested in issues to deal with cranes. So we're, we're talking about having a local um, group that might try and focus with the Kenya Wildlife Service on bird related trade. So it's, I can say there's not a lot happening right now, but hopefully, I know there's still enough people that are, you know, interested in this, there's no yeah, end and, of it. Yeah, and they're aware of it as well, like you say. So there's at least there's people out there that are that are involved in that that field of, of yeah working working on wildlife trade and and so yeah, if they're aware of it, then yeah, it's a it's a start. But yeah, I, I, it'll yeah. Be something that I'll probably I'll I'll follow you on it anyway because I I find it really interesting. As I say that aspect. Yeah. So <clears throat> moving away from the owls, then let's talk about. Um, what you what projects are you up to with the Peregrine Fund at the moment then or or you can talk about past ones as well that you're really proud of that you've done but like you say conservation and it never just sort of ends does it whatever project is a constant <laughs> thing for years and years and uh, we've got Professor Carl Jones on on Sunday oh yeah um, and so obviously if he said he said to me on the phone the other day he said what people don't realize Jimmy is is these projects they never end conservation <laughs> will outlive you know it will the Mauritius Castrol for instance obviously which he's famous for he was saying you know that's going to go on forever there's going to be there's going to have to be some management in place for for a long, long, long time, 
way out past him. So yeah, if, you, if any projects that you've got in the past or yeah. in current projects, the poem fund, what, what what's going what's going on at the moment in in Africa for you? Yeah, well, I mean, I totally agree. A conservationist will never be out of work, but I think COVID nineteen is a real is going to call our ranks <laughs> for sure because there's no funding right now. Yeah. Um, but, you know, hopefully moving on, you know, in some capacity next year, we'll see. Um, yeah, I've been working um, on a project we started a couple years ago called the Coexistence Co-op. Okay. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's actually a collaboration um, between myself and uh, Dr. Elaine Cotterell, who's um, based in the UK. Oh, well, she was actually based in Kenya for many, many years is how I know her but she also worked in the same area. Um, I met her at Impala Research Center and we both have worked in Laikipia, which is the county where Impala is sort of central. And, and, it, and Laikipia is sort of this unique area because it has, it's a bunch of private conservancies mostly and ranches and has a lot of wildlife. So Elaine is, um, has her project which is called Lion Landscapes, or, or sorry, her NGO is called Lion Landscapes. And so we, um, came together a couple of years ago because I had been doing a lot of work with vultures um, and vulture poisoning issues. And in Kenya, at least, the most of the poisoning of vultures is pretty much related to predator poisoning. So as I kind of explained earlier, you know, it's when a, when a um, local person loses a, you know, a cow or sometimes you know a goat but often it's many goats or many cows or a camel um they're actually fairly tolerant um particularly people we've been working with for a little bit um but you know it comes to a point where they you know you know there's the kenya wildlife service doesn't always respond very rapidly yeah <laughs> i mean they are pretty under they have a lot of capacity issues themselves um, so there's a real gap between the locals, um, what the livestock they're losing, and then, you know, the, the wildlife service who's supposed to respond. And yeah. so what often happens is, yeah, they, they may retaliate by putting poison on, a, on their remaining livestock carcass with the intention of, you know, poisoning that lion, hyena, um, leopard, whatever it is. But as I said earlier, the, the main thing that gets poison every almost I think every single poisoning is is vultures um, and other raptors um, usually tawny eagles bat allures, um, you know some of our really iconic birds so we lose you know you know often like we had a poisoning actually fairly recently where you know lions were targeted no lions were killed but we lost you know I think was it 17 vultures, you know, tawny, 11 tawny eagles, yeah. um, and a jackal, you know, that's, that's the typical mortality at a poisoning. Yeah. Um, so, so Elaine and I came together recognizing that, you know, you're not going to get very far in vulture conservation if you're not working with the predator people um, who are really at the root cause of a lot of this, these issues. Um, so, yeah, we've been, um, what we do is so our, the Peregrine Prawn's sort of um, input into the project is we had already, for at least a year before Elaine and I joined up, um, we had already been starting these trainings in the community. So I have a team. I don't do them myself. Um, I have a team that does them in Swahili language. And um, they go out. And our first training was really, these are like day-long trainings. And they're focused, the first one was focused on poisoning. Um, and it's actually amazing because when you start doing these, you realize there's so much demand from all levels of society because basically what we're talking about is, so in the morning, the guys go out and um, so my trainer will go and he'll, we'll set up a PowerPoint. We have a, you know, a little usually place that we use or we can do it other places. And, and so the morning is about learning a little bit about poisons, why people poison, you know, the basically for community level people, it is about them understanding how dangerous these things are. Yeah. And basically the, the 
animals they're targeting most of the time are usually not what's killed, but the whole environment gets contaminated. You know, you get a huge loss of species. But, you know, in the end, we've had cases where people who don't know there was a poisoning, you know, that happened the previous day go and graze their li livestock, their cows in this particular case where there was a poisoning in the previous day and two people lost, or sorry, two cows were lost. So it's really, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a human, it's a livestock issue, it's a wildlife issue, you know, all these social things and economic issues, you know, poisoning just touches on yeah, them all. Everything, yeah. Yeah, so the team goes out and we, and you know, most of the morning is just kind of educating people about poisons, poison awareness, um, you know, um, what poisons people use sometimes. And we, part of it is really interactive because, you know, we know, we, we are the poison people, unfortunately. We are all in a little network, um, but we know a tiny fraction of what is being poisoned. There is, you know, from everything from mice, <clears throat> excuse me, squirrels, um, guinea fowl for food, fish, you know, all kinds of birds like cranes because they, um, they dig up seeds, um, doves. I mean, from top to bottom, from elephants down to mice, everything gets poisoned and it's getting poisoned on a daily basis in most communities um, a lot of times. So you know, I'm not saying elephants are poisoned on a daily basis, but there's poisoning going on in most communities on a daily basis. Yeah. So when you start doing these trainings, you're kind of like, whoa, because, you know, a lot of people are coming at a really low, you know, educational level where it's, you know, it's just really basic information that you and I might take for granted, you know, about how dangerous these things are that people yeah. just don't realize. So, you know, we have a lot of interaction time with people so <clears throat> sorry. apart from you know us telling them about poisons we always try and engage them and say okay so what do you guys know right because yeah. everybody knows something yeah yeah everyone's got an opinion yeah everybody knows what goes on in the communities there is nothing that is not known people know so as soon as you start engaging with these people and they come comfortable with you they'll tell you all the stories so you know we collect all that data then in the afternoon we what we do is we have we set up what's a, like a mock poisoning scene yeah so the guys might um like we'll put out an empty poison container we might put some footprints you know we'll, we'll try and show people what a poisoning scene might look like okay yeah. we're not usually dead animals but you know we might have a feather or something like that so that people can understand what they might encounter in the field. Um, and so they, and then we teach them basically what they should do if they find this, you know, who to call, um, yeah. who, you know, who, what, what they should do. Like, you know, you have, I'm sure Andre may have talked about some of this stuff because he's heavily involved, um, but you want to secure the scene so nothing else can come in and die. And then you need to clean up the scene if you're, you know, mandated by KWS, you know, the Kenya Wildlife Service and things like that. Depends on obviously what species are involved. A lot of times, you know, in some communities it's dogs. Um, there's a lot of feral dogs and a lot of, and basically when they become a nuisance because they actually feed on a lot of crops, they eat, nobody's feeding them. So they eat tomatoes, they eat maize. Um, so they get poisoned on a pretty regular basis. So every community knows about poison dogs. And, you know, until we started talking to them, you know, a poison dog would just sit there until it rotted. But, you know, you, you tie this in. This is why we no longer have black kites in a lot of these areas. We no longer see hooded vultures in these communities because yeah. these things have been going on for decades. So, you know, it's been a real eye-opener, those trainings. And that's that, that was our initial focus. Um, and we still do those, we do a lot, and we have a huge demand. My, my guys are really good. And, um, you know, we have done them at government level with we train Kenya Wildlife Service. We've trained the um, Directorate of Criminal Investigations. Um, so we do all kinds of levels of trainings and there's so much demand for them. But 
in addition, we decided, you know, it's great to tell people about poisoning, but it doesn't really get to the root cause, which is, you know, the predator conflict. Yeah. So we joined up with um, an organization um, that's also been working in Lycopia and which is called Living with Lions. Um, and they, one of their employees named Steve Akwanga, he had developed some couple of decades earlier, uh, a very low cost livestock corral because um, what, what happens when the, when the predators um, attack, it's oftentimes it's in what we call a boma. So yeah. in Swahili, the boma is the is a livestock corral. So it's yeah, just yeah. like a fenced enclosure. And traditionally, these were just like um, what they do is traditionally is they cut acacia branches, right? And they because they're thorny and they make them in a circular um, yeah. and they put the they make some kind of quasi door and then you know livestock go in at night. Um, and that was that's the traditional boma, but. Of course, there's not a lot of trees in some areas now with human population growth. So um, basically Steve's idea was just how can we get communities to be building um, BOMAs that are better protecting their livestock. So it's a simple matter of teaching people how to use chain link fencing. Um, you know, there's a few details that are not maybe obvious to people, um, but like things like hyenas, you know, you know, if you look at their structure, they're not jumpers like a leopard or a lion, they yeah. go under. So you have to bury that chain link, you know, a few bit like this much, you know, underground yeah. so they can't get under it. Um, you know, in the door, the door is always the weak spot for um, letting predators in. So, you know, we teach people, so we have our second training now is basically Steve and I have another guy <laughs> now. We're doing livestock management training most of it is focused on building these BOMAs, um, better BOMAs, predator-proof BOMAs, we can call them. So the morning they talk about, you know, the, some of the importance of predators and, you know, how you can manage them better. I mean, we don't tell a lot of these pastoralists how to manage their, their livestock. They yeah. obviously know better than us, but there are, there are a lot of people out there now that don't get that sort of, you know, that real um, hand down, handed down training from you know yeah. father to son anymore a lot of those links are broken so you do get a lot of people who don't understand things like um well maybe we shouldn't allow children to herd livestock because you know the predators aren't really scared of children as they are yeah. adults um things like that and just like throwing away um like kitchen waste, you know, may be at bones or whatever, right outside your door. Well, maybe go a little further. <laughs> so you're not attracting, it's particularly the hyenas, right? To yeah, your, yeah. Where your cows are, right? So simple things, um, but, you know, some people know, but a lot of people don't, or you need reinforcing. And then in the afternoons, part of that training is um, they actually, we bring the poles and the chain link fencing, and we have them and the door and we have them build their own predator-proof BOMA right there. Um, and so that has been really, um, really, really rewarding. Um, we've had like over 350 built already. Oh, wow, brilliant. About, yeah, in about a year and a half. So oh, fantastic. Yeah, and you know, we do it a little differently because you know, there's a lot of groups that work, you know, with predators who are um, doing these kinds of BOMAs, you know, working with lion groups or whatever. And, a lot of them are subsidized um, by NGOs, um, but we don't do any of that. We, <laughs> ours is just capacity building of local people um, because we want them to invest in these BOMAs for their life. Yeah. You know, we, you know, you can hear the stories of how if you build something for someone, it's nice, but it doesn't mean they're going to invest in maintaining it. Yeah, so yeah. we want them to come, learn the skills that they need. They go home. And we know enough about the economic situation of most of the people in these communities that they can afford what is roughly, you know, between 50 to 60, maybe $70 US, um, you know, the chain link and the, the materials to build these BOMAs themselves. You know, that's selling usually one, maybe two goats. Done. Okay. So, 
I was just going to ask, going back to the a question that cropped up in my head, just going back to the first bit you were talking about, what have you what have you found when when you're talking to the communities about the 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 the, um, the actual poisoning and the the act of poisoning and what do you find them most receptive to in in terms of are they most worried about human health so the fact that it could kill their children or are they more receptive to the fact that it could kill the, the economic effect of it could kill their cattle at a later date or are they still actually like you say once you give them a little bit of knowledge they actually do think yeah well i still actually care about the the wildlife and, and what's going around it isn't just about humans and it isn't just about you know economics what what are they most what do you find the most receptive to when you start giving them the information yeah i think um i'm not at all the community um trainings but i certainly know what happens and i say um and even from the ones i've been at basically you know overall the the thing that'll drive people to do and change their behavior is if it relates to money economics um particularly for the for the income groups that we're dealing with, which are, you know, fairly low on the scale, um, you know, people who can't meet their basic need, if there's not an economic economic incentive for them to change, they won't. You can yeah. tell them all the education you want. You know, there may be something short term. You know, they may remember that, but at the end of the day, if they're not putting food on the table, yeah, that's yeah, that's a problem. So definitely. Okay the livestock, but it, there is definitely, my guys have told me there's definitely a difference in the gender roles too. Um, most of the, the keen, the most keen um, people that we have, particularly with the poisoning training um, that go home and um, sort of transmit that knowledge to a lot more people in the communities are definitely women. Um, okay. Most of the, most of the people that are very keen um, are, are the women. And I think that has to do with their role in bringing up children in the human health aspect. And often they're not as, I mean, they're, they may be the sole household, you know, head of household, but they might not be as, you know, um, the only income earner. So, you know, while that mostly falls to the men, it's pretty traditional still. So, you know, the women, you know, have its couldn't have a different role in it. And they're always very keen compared to it's most got, I mean, it's, it's interesting you, you mentioned that because I read a paper the other day um, from South America and I forget the, um, I forget the species it was on about, but it was a hawk eagle and it was, a, it was related to conflict of um, eagles predating on chickens. And they, they looked at the, the role of the, the the male and female in it in, a, in the sense of who to whether you needed to specifically target your you know education and your work towards an, an, the individual sexes and they found yeah the women the gist I got from it the women were quite important because they were at home and they were looking after the chickens the, the men were out at work so it was the women who had the the worst opinion or view of, of hawk eagles in, in that sense which I can't remember the species sorry um, and, and so yeah it was women that they really had to put the most work into to educate them because they saw it when the hawk eagle was killing the chicken outside <laughs> the, the patch and it was so it's quite interesting to hear a similar thing there that it's yeah that the yeah, that's definitely what we would say too. I mean, yeah, it, my guys were like, they're so keen to do women's groups or even we have, because the, the, we always target the training. So it's not just like anybody can come because we feel like if we, you know, if you do that, the whole village might show yeah. up, especially now if people are not home or home more, I mean. Yeah. So we, I have a guy who's our community liaison and basically he, um, you know, we know the really high conflict areas. And so we get about 15 people from each village and, you know, we try and pick, you know, some of the most influential people who will be like the village elders, the chiefs, yeah. um, but some of them are like organized in their own groups already. Like we have self-help groups and we have quite a few women's groups and environmental groups. So my guys are always really keen, you know, when there's a women's group, because 
because yeah, they know that they'll they they switch on really really well to what we're talking about, and the human health aspect of it really uh, resonates particularly with the women. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's 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 interesting. So my other question was about the so about the bomas um, or the the chain link bomas that you're making. So you're going into a just so I can build up a picture. You're going into a village and the the community buy into a a um, like well like a cooperative really of of this is our boma and they share it. Is that essentially what's Mostly it's individuals. Okay. So yeah, we're training, like I said, about 15 people per village. Um, so yeah, generally they'll go and do their own BOMA. We, I know of one, one village that, yeah, decided they'll do a community BOMA. Yeah. Um, I actually need to follow up on that because I'm not quite sure how that's worked out. But I think issues there's still a lot of like semi-nomadic people particularly if it's a drought year so yeah. sometimes the communities are really mobile and it doesn't always work to do you know something community centric yeah. yeah but majority of the people that we're working with are yeah they're doing their own their own bomas but it's been great i mean part of it is it's you know conservation is not just you know that's the selling point that we give on our proposals, but when you do this work and you kind of get into it, you realize there's so much more that you can't articulate, you know, to people unless like this talking to you, you don't get a yeah. chance to say how much more goes into this, these relationships. It's about, I mean, conservation is just about people. It's not about wildlife. And once you start working with people and building relationships, there's so many more dynamic levels that come out of these relationships that are really often more key to the work you're doing, you know, protecting vultures in our case, than, you know, actually maybe the poisoning, whatever. It's, it's having these keen people who are not, I shouldn't say they're informants, but they are like our link to what's happening in the community. So when you invest a day of training 15 people, you have 15 people that are like, you know, you can call them, we get everybody's names, everybody's phone numbers who come to our trainings. And we have a little army of people now, right? That we can call at any time. And when like, particularly now, you know, with COVID, this situation, um, it's overlapped with a lot of really heavy rains. Um, Actually, they had been going, they started even earlier back in October and they didn't, they, we really didn't have our normal dry season in J January and February. So now, you know, we've had these six, seven months of almost continual rains. And what happens in the rainy season is the, um, you know, the, obviously the grass grows taller and the lions tend to become a lot more um, problem for the communities. Um, part of it is that the, the their prey their natural prey moves a lot more so they like we have zebras that go into communities and the you know the lions follow and get into trouble but then the grass is taller so the lions can hunt you know more easily in the daytime because they're not being seen as well yeah so they also get into problems more with livestock you know when the grass is tall and so that's Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to ask, does that sort of information, just quickly, I was going to ask, that sort of information is coming from you working with Lion Landscapes, is it? That, is that right? So there. Yeah, just the lion, you know, the lion people, as we call them, because for for any, a lot of us with raptors, you know, a lot of the movements, a lot of the populations of raptors, they're all still, a lot of them tied to predators, right? Um they can't be, I mean, when I say predators, I mean the big mammal predators, right? Yeah. So, you know, they, especially for most of our birds of prey, even if they're not traditional scavengers, um, they still scavenge when they're hungry. So yeah, yeah. you can also, I'm sure we've talked about doing this kind of study, but I don't think we ever have. I'm sure somebody has done it, is where you look at, you know, how much birds of prey move where you actually still have good, you know, lion, hyena populations because they, you know, they work together, you know, it's part yeah. of the ecosystem yeah. for them. So, 
yeah the you know the lion stuff i yeah some of it's come from you know lion landscapes um but of course you know working on poisoning is also a real link to all the lion people so you do kind of over the years we've i i've started it well we've i actually work with andre um on a, a database it's I don't know if you mentioned it. It's called the African Wildlife Poisoning Database. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, and that was, we had a Kenya version that was started back in 2008 by somebody else, um, but I took it over. And then Andre and, has been leading in the Southern Africa region. So I try and collate all database records, well, particularly from Kenya, but then we have, you know, some obvious you know, people that we work with in other countries. So I do all of like this Northern part in West Africa. Andre does all the Southern part mostly. And then we have this online database now where anybody can, you know, request to get records um, depending on what they want to use it for. Yeah. Um, and it's been a real, you know, obviously you can't affect change and you can't change, you know, particularly, you know, people's behavior, but even governments you know, linked to all, you know, wildlife poisoning. There's a lot of policy issues in these things, right? Yeah. And you can't do that. The first thing someone says to you is, okay, show us the data, <laughs> right? So we, we started a whole campaign against Furidan in particular in 2008, a whole bunch of us. And, you know, that's what they said, show us the data. And then, you know, they'll sit there and dispute it. And so that's where the database came from. It's like, okay. Here's yeah. the data, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. So that, yeah, back up the argument. Yeah, absolutely. Um, over it. So what? Obviously, you're busy with that. I'm, I'm conscious of time. I don't want to keep you all all, all day. I know. I know. Well, I've not got a lot on today, but anyway, <laughs> other people have got lives. What What else have you Have you got anything else in the pipeline or the future? I, I know. I mean, it's probably a silly question to ask, really, because. Yeah, we know from talking to Andre about vultures that it's such a such a dire problem out there at the moment, and it's it, yeah, there's so much work that's needing to go into it. I feel a bit silly maybe asking if there's any other projects you've got going at the moment or <laughs> any other ideas. Um, but yeah. yeah, we do. Um, I mean, I I have a lot of other vulture actually more hands-on stuff with vultures that I do as part of the community work we do. Yeah. I mean, we still trap and tag vultures. I don't have a lot that are moving around, but we still have a lot of, you know, vultures um, movement studies that we do. And I, we monitor a few, um, a lot of the vulture cliffs in um, Kenya, which is mostly for Rupel's uh, vultures. And um, they, what else do we do? Well, I actually have quite a few students too. Um, so one of them's working with the vultures, um, looking at movement patterns in relation to poisoning cases. I have another, well, he's not a student at the moment, but he's working on a project on secretary birds. Oh, brilliant. Um, yeah, and he's just starting. He just got some funding to do that. Um, I think maybe what might be more of interest to people too is that we're, you know, and all this downtime is given us, you know, I'm sure you've heard this from others, you know, people are writing a lot and going through all our data that we have. Yeah. So actually for even well before COVID struck, we, we've been working on um, looking to do the analysis of road survey data for raptors okay, that we've yeah. been, yeah, we had started back in 2010. So we were doing annual surveys for like over five days we had two teams that went one my team went up in sort of northern Kenya like Kibia Sambu area and then there was a southern team that went down in Savo and Amboseli National Park area so basically what we're doing is compiling all that data with some historical data from from Kenya and we are you know obviously looking at population trends which I'm sure you can imagine they mostly just go in one direction. <laughs> um, yeah, some pretty steep declines in you know yeah. number of species. Of course, we already know about vultures, but this will look at you know most a lot of vult. I mean, sorry, a lot of raptors, but obviously not the the forest species and owls are not included. But but that is something um, I hope to we hope to publish you know in the next few months and then somewhat linked to that is going to be another um, publication that is going to look at um, basically there's been three studies that have 
on raptor survey road surveys that have been done in Africa. So there's going to be this Kenyan one that we're going to publish. There was one in Botswana um, yep. a couple of years ago that Becky Garbett headed. And then Jean-Marc Fillet has done those long transects in West Africa. Um, and so we're going to combine um, all those areas and basically show um, on a, for most species, it'll be a global assessment of their population trends over about 40 years. And that's and really going to show a lot. <laughs> I'm assuming, or I'm, 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 would I be right in assuming a lot of this is, if, if someone watching this wants to go on and read, read and find out a bit more, is this all on the Peregrine Fund, Fund website? I, don't, I didn't check, I should have checked. Ah, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Peregrine Fund just redid their website. I don't even know what's on it. Um, okay. Not that much yet. Yeah, I think it's still a work in progress. Okay. Um, but no, um, I think a lot of it actually, if you um, probably where I post mostly is we have a Facebook page. It's called okay. the Co it's Coexistence Co-op. Um, so at Co Coexistence Co-op. Um, and if you, if you get onto that, um, and you follow us there, I generally post, um, I do most of the posting, so it's not okay. very lion focused, mostly birds of prey focused. Well, that's all I'm interested in anyway. No, I'm joking. I do like lions, but yeah, I like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, what I'll do is I'll try and tag that. I'll, I'll try and add it. And I'm, I'm pretty sure I follow, follow that on Facebook. I'm pretty good at picking up on things like that. So mm. I'll try and tag it into the comments of this, of this video on Facebook. So people can, people can hopefully get a direct, direct link to it. What um if I'm as I say I just keep looking at the time so I'm conscious we're we're on on sixty minutes or pretty much on the hour. Just to finish off then, um, mm. what do um what, I'm trying to remember I said about that bad question that I asked Andre and I'm trying not to ask it but I like to okay. I like to finish on not a not a high note but sort of what are you most I asked Alex Alex the other day yes on Tuesday what he was most proud of but. Yeah, I suppose it because you've been involved in so much in in Kenya now. Um, what are you most proud of, or what what do you see is going to be the big big thing that you want to get involved in next? It's a big question. Sorry, I'm bad at these. Yeah, I'll well, I'll try not to chat too long. I no, it's, well, it's, I'm only I'm only conscious. I'm always <laughs> conscious of time because um, I can I can talk the back leg off a donkey. You see about birds of prey, and I don't want to keep <laughs> Darcy. I don't want to keep you here for too long. But yeah, so we'll. Yeah. I would have to say I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of the work we've done in highlighting the African vulture crisis. Basically, I mean, I think, you know, that all started, you know, looking around, and you know, I was writing a bunch of blogs and on National Geographic, and they were getting posted on their Facebook page, which was pretty amazing because of the reach they had, and then that just snowballed, and then, yeah, doing basically getting the vultures on, you know, on the page, basically, you know, in the spotlight. And it's amazing, you know, how that has really taken off. I mean, in Africa, obviously, birds are not high on people's list compared to, you know, rhinos, apes, elephants, all that. Yeah. So we do fly under the radar, <laughs> pun intended. And um, so it's been great to see, you know, particularly U.S. zoos get involved and, and start to fund some of us to do a lot of this work. So I'm really proud of how much that has taken off, how we've, and particularly how it is, you know, I, you don't, these are things you don't realize until afterwards, right? In retrospect, you can say, you know, people always say, well, okay, what's a paper, right? Who cares? That's, that's for science nerds. Mm -hmm. But honestly, I can tell from that process of writing the paper that we did in 2005, published in 2006 about the vulture decline in Africa, you know, the impact of that was beyond imagination. We never thought it would get this far. And what, what I learned is that it actually, you know, the science will always be there, but understanding that that is a crucial part of the process, because yeah. particularly when you're dealing with funding that traditionally, I would say at least 90% of all funding in Africa goes to the big guys, right? not any birds but when you're dealing with that scenario it's like well how do you get on this the radar of these funders and you have to do those kind of papers because they bring so much attention 
So that I'm, I'm really proud of how that's gone and also how much that has spurred local, you know, people, uh, you know, well, I shouldn't just say local people, but um, Africans from all different countries to get involved and to really understand what's going on with vultures and, you know, by extension, and I hope with this other paper I was talking about, it'll be birds of prey in general, because we have got so many now Africans in West Africa, Kenya, Uganda, Ethiopia, we have so many people now who are, you know, picking up on vultures in particular, um, wanting to, to do studies on them, looking for funding. So this is the key for how these birds are going to be, you know, served for the long term. It's not going to be people like me, of course. So I'm very proud to see that hopefully there'll be a legacy of you know, the work in terms of, you know, having local African people just being involved in, in yeah. wanting to conserve birds of prey. Brilliant. Excellent. Well, that's a pretty good note to finish on, I think. Right, Darcy, yeah. that's been, it's been amazing. Thank you very much for taking time to chat to us all. I will, uh, I'll, I'll hit stop. Um, and then, Great. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you very much.